Hello everyone, thanks for tuning in today. We are Sarah and Lily, both master's students at the Gender Studies Department of Central European University here in Vienna. Today we have the pleasure to welcome you to our very first episode of our podcast, Gents Behind the Scenes. The idea behind this podcast is that we want to take some time to get to know the people who teach us here beyond the classroom. We want to hear about who they are, how their academic journeys unfolded, and what they enjoy doing when they are not at a desk. That's right, and in the next 45 minutes or so, we will introduce to you Professor Francisca de Haan, who is currently head of the Department of Gender Studies. Francisca earned her PhD in History at the Erasmus University in Rotterdam, the Netherlands, back in 1992. She joined CEU as a professor of Gender Studies and History some 20 years ago, and on top of being head of department, Francisca also serves as the co-director of the European Master's Programme in Women's and Gender History called Matilda. Now, this is what we know thanks to the internet, but what you will learn here and what we will find out goes way beyond that, of course. So if you've always wanted to know which historical figures an expert in women's and gender history would like to invite for dinner, stay with us. Come away with me in the night Come away with me and I will write you a song Come away with me Following Francisca's own wish, you have just heard a snippet of Nora Jones' Come Away With Me. So we will start with an easy one first. Do you have a middle name? I do. My middle name is Maria, and that's um, the name of my maternal grandmother. And both Francisca and Maria are Catholic names. Both sides of the family were Catholic, so that's where it comes from. Mm -hmm. But I don't use it. Except maybe, yeah, it's in my passport. According to Wikipedia, which everyone reads but no one dares to cite, you were, and I'm citing here, brought up in the Netherlands in a family which included a few independent and married teachers. And that inspired you to become a teacher from early on. Is this correct? It is. My grandmother had two sisters who were teachers and therefore unmarried because it was not possible to remain working as a teacher in the Netherlands in the first half of the 20th century. So they were unmarried, single, independent women. And I think they would also have remained single if it hadn't been enforced upon them. But yes, they were important in my life. I saw them, we saw them every summer, at least for a couple of weeks. And they were just nice, bright, kind, inspiring people in my life, yes. So they inspired you to become like a teacher right away or did you have any other career aspirations at first? I think I never had another career aspiration. I still remember very strongly that when I went to primary school, in the first class of primary school, I thought this is what I want to do. I want to be a, a teacher. I thought of two things. Uh, actually, I thought of myself as becoming an aunt so never a mother and a teacher, like really when from that early on. Because you told some of us in class that you were one of the few members in your family who went to university. What was that like as an experience? There's a lot I could tell you around that. It's, um, it's an 
obviously an important part of my earlier history. So I was the first on both sides of the family who went to a university, but that and that was far from self-evident. So when I went to high school, that was this was a new system at the time in which all above a certain level, all students uh, from 12, 13 um, were together in the first year of this high school. And after the first year, you went into a specific direction. So the school wanted me to go to the gymnasium, which was uh, the highest level. And my father very actively opposed that because he did not want me to go to a university. That was his argument. That is not for us. That's not what we do. It was, it was a strong fight, and I lost that. But my father allowed me to go to the Athenaeum, which was also six years, and which also gives one direct access to university. I think he just didn't know that because it was really a new system. So in that sense, although I didn't go to a gymnasium, which I regretted, I was immediately on the track of being of having direct access to a university, which wasn't on my mind so strongly. It's not that because it didn't really exist in my universe, but I just wanted to go to the gymnasium because that was what it was the most interesting for me. And, ex- and again, what the school really tried to get me on. By the time I was 17, 18 and getting to the end of high school, my father in particular found, felt me being far too rebellious and very difficult. And the, there was an explicit agreement that I could stay living with them until I had finished high school and then go, which I did, but to Amsterdam, eh? to the University of Amsterdam. But everything around that I have organized myself. I had to do myself. I didn't get (laughs) a single dime of support or moral, emotional support. So it really was my own um, strong wish to do that. And I, I did what needed to be done. But because of that, I also because of that, the beginning was very difficult. I had no friends, I had no knowledge of what one could do to to become a member of an organization or a student club, whatever. So in the beginning, I was, I'd say, relatively lonely, although I lived in a student flat. So this was his flat of, I think, even 12 floors with just students. And in that sense, I did feel part of a community and I made friends there. So it's not that I was entirely eh, lonely. And at the time, I also had a boyfriend. That was the last time. But so I wasn't completely without eh, friendship or love or support. But more in a university context, it was difficult in the first year. And that stayed, I think, until somewhere in the second year, I found a group of people that were my with whom I shared ideas and interests, political ideas, etc. That included a group of students who were working to get women's history in the curriculum. So from 
basically from January, we would say from the winter semester in the second year, I found my, my group and my, uh, my context. And from then on, everything was actually um, good. And then can you tell us what got you interested in history particularly? Yeah, I'm not really sure about that. One thing that was always super important for me was reading. So I, oh, I, my mother taught me to read before I went to primary school already. And I've just always read a lot. Um, and both of my parents read. I mean, it's always a complex picture. The only thing that I remember from getting excited about history was when was in the second year of high school. So in at the Athenaeum, where we had a very good history teacher and I just thought this is it I, I felt really like in my heart opening to history so then the becoming a teacher became becoming a history teacher and it was still not connected to going to university or anything but history teacher and as a current student I'm really curious to know what did you struggle the most as a student I think that What I struggled the most with was what I uh, discussed just now, which was getting into this whole new context and yeah, finding out how everything worked, but especially yeah, finding friends, fellow peers with the same ideas, etc. Finding it in that sense, finding my group, my context, my friends. But after that, I don't think I found it difficult. And maybe I should add that, of course, the whole context was entirely different. This was long before the Bologna system in higher education. So there was no separate BA as an end diploma. And what we studied, that was the standard, was a six-year MA. And then there were no very strict rules about how long you could be registered as a student. So many people did many things, and so did I. This was also the time of a lot of social movements. So it was the women's movement, the squatters movement, the lesbian movement. And yeah, after my first year, I was in all of that. And it was always this combination of things. I always also worked to earn money. Um, and maybe let me say that in terms of context, I was particularly lucky that in the early 1970s, there was a social democratic government in the Netherlands, which um, installed an very good system of scholarships for university students. Without that, I wouldn't have been able to go because, as I said, I didn't get this single penny of support from my parents. So I had that scholarship. Nonetheless, I also worked from probably from the second year onwards as well. So I just had a lot of things to do, but it didn't feel like a struggle. It felt like basically a very useful and, and enriching combination of things that I was doing. And at times I can say that there were definitely times when my study was low on the list of my priorities. But at the same time, I, it, I never gave up on it or thought, well, it's, it's, it was always there. I was a very good student and I had to work hard for my studies or I did. But I had the, really the privilege of being a student in that context in Amsterdam. So it took me nine years to graduate. And you um, applied to universities, you studied and you conducted historical research before the Internet was really a thing that everybody used, which for us is very hard to imagine. What did that look like in concrete terms? The answer partly depends on where and when. But what I very much have 
in my mind as some as how I see myself doing that is being on my bicycle in Amsterdam and uh, going to, for example, in the History Institute, we had, there was a huge library and I also worked there for a couple of years as an assist, assistant. Or I was on my bicycle to the university library or to the municipal archive. And so for me, essential difference is that no, I didn't open my computer because we didn't have it yet and uh, look up what is where. But you had to go to these places. And I think also because I was energetic and healthy and there's few things I love more than being on my bicycle in Amsterdam. So I, I did that. And that, so that was part of uh, how, how it all worked. And then um, yeah, later, uh, the, the research expanded, etc. So going to other cities or even other countries. But in, in essence, the difference is that we, there's much more, uh, there was much more physical work. You have to bring yourself to a certain place and do the work there. And of course, we had to find information in these um, these, draw- these drawers with all these uh, fishes. It's not like you type in something. Now you open one of these 500 drawers and you try to find something in in all these cards. So it, it was a very different experience. That is true for us. I mean, we did not know huh, the, the later. So this was how it was and it was good. Since we are touching the topic of your early studies, what was your first research project or thesis about? If you mean my MA thesis, that was because we, as a history student, we had to do a lot of projects. So also for research seminars, and then we had to do a project in the municipal archive, etc. But the bigger, the first bigger one was the MA thesis. And this I did together with a friend. She's still one of my best friends. We were allowed to do a bigger research project together if we made it clear who wrote what of the thesis. So, okay. And... Our MA thesis was called in Dutch Jonge Dochters and Oude Vrijsters. So basically, subtitle, Unmarried Women in Haarlem, which is a city close to Amsterdam, in the first half of the 19th century. Because there was a strong sort of assertion in the literature that women could only exist as married women, that there basically were no independent single women. And I didn't believe that. And I wanted to find them. So this is what we did. We, we, we had been through an enormous amount of archival material, census documents, etc. And we did find them. And I, I have here the cover of the MA thesis, and I will describe it to you. This is a drawing, pen drawing, from the first half of the 19th century. And what you see is three women who are dancing. And they are Un- unmarried women. We know that from the uh, the description. So not only did they exist, but they also had fun. And maybe another one more thing. Our MA thesis was really innovative and based on a lot of research and we won a significant prize with it. So that was also, it was acknowledged that this was important work. And uh, what made you come to see you then about 20 years ago, which was a very young university back then? Yes, that's a really important question, obviously. I initially worked as a researcher at the Department of Women's Studies at Leiden University, but that was temporary. And then I 
worked at the International Institute of Social History in Amsterdam, which is one of the, the most important social history libraries and archives and research institutions in the world. So, I mean, Amsterdam is, has a lot of these good things. And But being there, I mean, and at the time, I did not see how I could ever get into university again and get a teaching position. And as we know, I really liked to teach. And the other thing is that from the time that I was a PhD student, I was involved in the creation and building up of the International Federation for Research in Women's History. So I was at the founding conference in Bellagio in 1989. And the year before, I was at the European Summer University in Berlin, where there was, this was a fantastic um, occasion, four weeks of summer university paid lavishly by the Berlin government, West Berlin government. And with, so there were four disciplines. History was one of the four. And there were four weeks. The theme for history was gender and history. This was incredibly early. Joan Scott's article in the American Historical Review on gender as a useful category of historical analysis had hardly appeared. And that was just a year earlier. December 1986. So it was very early, and every week there was another teacher, uh, internationally well-known pioneers of women's history. It was fantastic that I could go there. There were 25 students from the whole of Europe. It was one of really one of the best months of my life. I still think back to it with great joy. And I met a number of people there who were, we were all MA or mostly PhD students, and those who were there are professors in various countries, those who were serious about that. And so, but because of that, I got to know some of the already established professors. So through one of them, Natalie Simon Davis, we got word that they were establishing this International Federation for Research in Women's History, and could we send someone who represented the Netherlands? And I was at a meeting of the, the Dutch Women's History Organization, and when this question came, it was like, who would like to go? Well, the people who hear us can't see me, but everybody was looking in another direction, like, I'm not here. I, and I thought, yeah, great. And so I raised my hand and said, I would like to go. And basically from then on, I was in that international sphere and I went to the conferences, etc. So in 2000, I think, there was a, every five years, there is a conference of the World Historical Association, the International Committee of the Historical Sciences, and the International Federation for Research in Women's History always is there and all has its own conference as well. And at the 2000 conference in Oslo, I chaired a panel in which Susan Zimmermann was a contributor. And so that's one connection. And then uh, it was on the internet that the CEU was going to expand the Department of Gender Studies. And I asked Gisela Bock, who was one of the four professors in this Berlin European Summer University, really not thinking so specifically, but more in a general sense, I was asking her, do you think this might something be something for me maybe in the future? And she immediately wrote to Susan saying, Francisca is maybe interested. And Susan asked me then to um, apply, which I did. 
So it is really through this international connection, the world international world of women's history, that I heard about it and that I was asked to apply. And the reason why I did it in the end was that I was already so interested in an international perspective and being in an international context. That was for me so important and inspiring. And now the second recommendation of music by Francisca is Bang 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 by Tracy Chapman from her album Matters of the Heart. Bang, 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 we shoot him down Give him drugs and give him candy Anything Oh, to make him think he's happy And he won't ever come for us Now that we've got to know Francisca a bit in terms of early interests and aspirations, we'll be moving on to questions about her present role and passions. Do you still get nervous before classes or mm, conference presentations, say? Mm, say, no. I've had so many years of experience by now. I Certainly in earlier years, but no, if, if I feel something in advance, it's let's say, positive anticipation. I feel like doing it. I look forward to it. You were mentioning to us before that you loved reading from a very early age, and you still do, I imagine. So what is your favorite setting to read or write in? I've always also liked to write. And when I was really maybe 10 years or even younger, I, I wrote a magazine for my neighbor kids. So... I was already thinking also hey, along these lines. But reading, well, nowadays, so nowadays writing first, I just, I have a great study in Amsterdam, so this is my favorite place to be sitting to write. Reading, I really love to do it outside if possible at all. So I have spent countless hours on my various balconies and in Amsterdam we have a garden. So that's my favorite setting, absolutely. And what do you read just for pleasure? I haven't had enough time to read for pleasure for a number of years now, but I really like to read um, detective novels. That's what I do the most. So over the years, um, let's say um, Kate Atkinson, Susan Hall, Elizabeth George, she wrote loads of books maybe 20 years ago. There was one every year. We read all of them every year. Yeah, new Elizabeth George. And Donna Leon is really my favorite. She has, I don't know whether you know her books, but there's many of them, maybe 30. I've definitely read them all. And um, it's. I find it very relaxing. And at the same time, her books are interesting. They're about real, huh? real issues, real crimes in Venice huh? and in, to a large extent in the world, mig migration issue or similar things. And, um, and the environment, the, the, I mean, the problems are really meaningful and she writes so well so yes that's the kind of books that I love to read for relaxation yes and sometimes but not enough um, a, a, let's say a feminist uh, novel such as a girl woman other that we read for the this uh, 
course on feminism and community, which I think is a fabulous book. But I will be doing more of that um, from September. (laughs) That's a very exciting plan. (laughs) And as we all know, academia can be a very challenging field full of funding applications and precarious jobs. So what is your advice to young researchers to stay sane in academia? It's a really important question. And in my time, too, people thought the situation is difficult. When I was younger, I mean, and when I started, it's difficult, da, 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 high demands, etc. And that was true. But nowadays, it's much more difficult. I would definitely uh, want to emphasize that. And I think it's incredibly difficult not to sort of be drawn into all this, these uh, pressures and expectations, etc. And to some extent, it's, it's unavoidable. But I think a very basic thing that I would recommend to everybody always is try to get enough sleep. Because the moment you are exhausted, you don't function well. But, and that's, I think, really important too, you can't enjoy what you're doing anymore. And, and in essence, what we're doing is such is fantastic work. We are incredibly privileged, even though the situation is much more difficult. So if we would then not be able to enjoy what we're doing, maybe not on a, but I would even say on a daily basis, because we are so over-demanded and then exhausted, I think that would be, for me, that's that's number one thing, that one tries to take enough good care of oneself to get enough sleep so that one not only can function well, but that indeed you can enjoy, that you can be maybe nice to your fellow human beings as well. I think it's it's fundamental. And um, I also think that it's very important to try to get get to know the right people in the sense of friends and people who can support you and so that you don't feel like you're, you're just on your own or yeah, there's no people who help you. And yeah, networks are important. And I partly or largely through my work or part- active participation in the International Federation for Research in Women's History and the conferences I went to in, in all these places, but also the Berkshire Conference on the History of Women, which is the largest and most influential women's history conference that takes place in the U.S. every three years. So because I went to these conferences, I saw certain people like with a certain regularity, you become friends. So for many years, some of my best friends have been these more established, older feminist historians in various countries, which means that I always had this sense of connection and of being part of a need of a broader group and a broader project of women's and gender history that we were all part of. And I think that makes a big difference, even when you have to work very hard, etc., that you have this sense of it's meaningful, right, in the end, and, and you're not alone. So, yeah, finding your friends and peers and support networks so that you can get support and give support, I think that's crucially important. And you have already hinted at how much you love Amsterdam in this interview. And I also remember you saying it in class. Um, if Sarah and I now planned a weekend trip to Amsterdam, <laughs> what would be your top tips? I would, um, well, as I said myself, I enormously and always enjoy 
bicycling to Amsterdam, but that's probably because I have been doing it basically when I was put on a bicycle since I was a baby. So it feels like a very easy and natural thing between quotation marks for me to do. And that's probably not the case for you if you were to (laughs) come to Amsterdam for a weekend. But I would definitely say go to the Vondelpark. So this is a huge park in really in the city center. It's old, it's from the 19th century. And it's it's beautiful, it's big, and it has very different parts. Loads of students and other young people go there, have picnics, da-da-da. There's restaurants, cafes, there's concerts. It's It's both beautiful and it has all these other attractive sites. So yes, spend time there. And another location that I find really fantastic is the basically the north of Amsterdam. So everybody knows, if you know Amsterdam, you know the canals and that whole part. And then there's the central station and behind the central station, there's a river, the River Ei. Until not so long ago, that was sort of in most people's mind, that was Amsterdam. But actually it's the north of Amsterdam that is on the north side of the River Ei. And that for a long time consisted of an agglomeration of villages or former villages and a lot of um, harbor activity, that's all gone. Deindustrialization, and then for a number of years basically I'd say nothing. And now they have really um, opened up that whole area and there's a lot of new houses and a lot of cultural things that's starting or have started. And directly across the central station so on the re- on the other side of the river there's all these ferries going up and down there is this new it's called i like the eyes you're we're looking with i film museum and restaurant and it's a fantastic building it's very big it's very beautiful it sort of looks like an eye maybe but you can also see other things in it it's white it's has fantastic architecture there's a huge terrace, you look over the river, fantastic restaurant, fantastic movies. I, I love that place. So if you were there, I'd say try to go there. And regarding the city that we are currently speaking in, what's your favorite thing about Vienna? Yeah, that's, that is in fact a difficult question because the almost three years that we have been here or that we were partially here and then fully here have been times of COVID. And for basically for two years, my life has existed of moving between my flat, the spa and the CU. Incredibly boring and really nothing. And I've, I've also been very careful, so I didn't go to other places, even if that maybe were possible. So I really haven't explored Vienna. But from earlier years when I sometimes went there or from the few things I've done now, I'd say, of course, the museums are fantastic. And I would always try to come back eh, occasionally for them alone. But in a broader sense, the cultural life of Vienna, the the, the music history, all of that is, is of course, very um, attractive. As far as we could see, you are not very present on the internet or on social media, not at all, including um, more professional networks such as LinkedIn or ResearchGate. Why is that? Yeah, that that was a very conscious decision on my part. And the longer I've not been doing it, the more I'm convinced that 
<laughs> it was a good decision. But one thing is that I really don't want to spend too much time behind my computer. I liked eh, to write and I like to read, but not necessarily via the screen. And if you do such things, you just add enormously to the time you have to spend online. That's already something I really don't want to do. I also am very much aware of the fact that uh, it wasn't really necessary for me because in 2005, I became a full professor. So I didn't need to use these tools to position myself, to get into touch, make my work known, etc. So in that sense, that was, I've been privileged, of course. But it's also, um, that's more the more professional side, if you like. But I also don't want to be connected to my friends in this way. I, I want to see my friends. I want to have personal meetings and connections and not through machines, telephones, technology. So I, I really don't like it. And then and maybe finally, over time, it has only become more clear how much these various social media are manipulated by all sorts of other forces. And despite the fact that, of course, social media can play a role in, in, in connecting people and in supporting social movements, etc. At the same time, we know there's so much there of the capitalist system of states with certain intentions, etc. I don't want to be part of that. With such a strong passion for history, as you have demonstrated throughout this conversation with <laughs> us, if you could host a dinner party with historical figures, whom would you invite? Yes, it's a really very nice question. And I was thinking immediately of three women. The first is Virginia Woolf. For many, many, many years, I've been a great fan of her work, and I was reading all the biographies that came out. And if you would go through my earlier work, you would see that she's always there. I would always find a way to, to give her a place somewhere. And she's still, I, I'm not so much into that kind of work anymore, Or, but she was an, an important feminist and uh, an, an, a feminist anti-fascist as well. So I would definitely want to include her. The second person would be Claudia Jones. And Claudia Jones was a Trinidad-born black, later communist woman, one of the most important communist women activists in the US in the mid-20th century. And she has written very innovative work about the triple oppression of black women. And she was for a long time relatively unknown because the whole communist movement got suppressed in the US and she and a number of people got prison sentences and or were deported. She was deported to Great Britain. So this whole structure basically collapsed of, collapsed of what was happening in the US, including the Congress of American Women, the US branch of the Women's International Democratic Federation. So all these structures were, they, they ended. And there was su such government oppression that none of it could uh, continue. And in that whole process, Claudia Jones has been not just physically deported, but as Carol Boyce Davis says, the radical subject, the black radical woman subject also disappeared from the, let's say, the mental horizon, the political horizon in the US in any case for a long time. 
But she has been rediscovered, and her work is fantastic, and there's also fantastic work about her. So I would love to um, have a chance to talk with Claudia Jones as well. And then um, there's also one Dutch woman that I would like to include in my um, special dinner evening, and this is uh, Frida Berlinfante, who lived from 1904 to 1995. She was a cellist, so a musician, and she was um, the first woman who conducted an orchestra in the Netherlands before World War II. And she was um, praised. She was in the, in the main newspapers, etc. She was very talented also as a conductor, which was very uh, new for a woman. Etc. So she was incredibly, um, she had this future ahead of her. And then the Second World War broke out. She was um, uh, of Jewish background. She was also a lesbian. But these were not the reasons why she almost immediately entered into the resistance against the Nazis. She had a very clear political um, understanding of what was happening. And she became involved in some of the main um, um, resistance activities. And in fact, she was the one who thought of this action that has become that's one of the most important things the Dutch resistance has done, which is that in Amsterdam, where the biggest part of the Dutch Jewish population lived, they have tried to blow up the building in which the, 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 the registration of the population was um, held so that the German occupiers could no longer identify who were the Jewish citizens. And this only partially succeeded. Of course, it is a very difficult thing to do. And then so in a few weeks after this event, um, someone wasn't... Um, silent enough and they the Ger the Germans were able to find out who had been the people in this um, um, act of resistance and most of them were arrested uh, Frida Bellinfante managed to escape and went to Switzerland in the end but most of the people involved were um, killed by the, uh, the the Nazis so there is a fantastic biography about her which unfortunately is only available in Dutch but what is what I found so important and also moving is um, how this author, Tony Baumanns, um, describes what Frida Bellinfante thought of this whole episode and how it affected her. So she came back in 1945 and she was completely disillusioned by what she found in this post-war Netherlands because People just lived on as if nothing had happened. They didn't really seem to care about the fact that three quarters of the Dutch Jewish population were deported and murdered. But um, And many people had indeed collaborated with the Nazis and it was like, okay, yeah, too bad it happened, but let's move on. And this, this sort of, this, this coldness and this not this lack of engagement with what really had happened and what that meant is, was something that she couldn't um, accept. 
So when she got a chance by someone she had met earlier to, he, he invited her. He said, I see that you're not eh, functioning well. Why don't you come to the U.S.? I, I'll, uh, I'll support you for a year and you can find find out if you can live here, establish yourself, which is what she did. And she became an important orchestra conductor there, etc. And... Um, so she stayed there basically for the rest of her life. She found a very great love, and it it was a very good decision, clearly. But overall, I find her so impressive and so um, yeah, interesting on many levels that I would really like to meet her as well and invite her to the dinner party. Hypothetically speaking, if the university were to double the budget of the Gender Studies Department, what would you want to realize with that extra money? Yeah, that's also a very nice question, of course. I would say, first of all, give the students proper stipends, because that is so important eh, for everybody just to be able to function. So that's that's the first thing. Then I would l love to have a bigger Department of Gender Studies. I, I think, as you may know, that we are really good and what we do is important. I... I I th I'm really proud of the Department of Gender Studies, but it could be bigger. And I would definitely like to have more colleagues. So I'm sure you know that you've seen that people work incredibly hard. And for many years, the department has really been at the minimum level of the number of people that we would officially need for the number of students that we have. And people are, well, we are all... Um, engaged and dedicated to our work. We involved in gender studies, feminism, all sorts of activism. It's not just a job that we do from nine to five. So we work very hard. But there is, let's say, a level of exploitation there that is quite significant. So more faculty would be a great, uh, would, would really enhance everybody's lives, but would also, again, mean that we can do our work better because we wouldn't have to work too hard all the time. We could, yeah, we could indeed function better, but we could also do more things that we can't do now. And also with this double budget, and we could, um, there's a lot of activities one can think of that we don't do because we have no time to organize them. So. Some of it is, has been COVID again and the forced move to Vienna, but we haven't had any bigger conference or any conference in the department or uh, cultural events, people that we could invite. There are a lot of things that one could do with more money, which would be really um, useful. You have been at CEU for two decades now, and this is your last year. What comes next? What comes next is that I will continue with research and writing. So in that sense, I will continue with things that are really very important to me, but I will be doing that in Amsterdam. I am already a fellow at the International Institute of Social History, where I was before I came to the CEU, but now that's only something on paper. From September, I will be there as a fellow in person, and I will have an office and I will be going to my office probably three days in a week and I will do research there. A lot of my sources are in that institute and I will be reading and writing and I will be very happy.
And what do you think you'll miss the most about CEU? Undoubtedly the students. The students have always been yeah, the, the core of my joy of being a teacher and professor at the CEU in our department. The students are the student body is really different now from what it was eh, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, but in all these years and in these different compositions, the students have always been marvelous, inspiring. And even though you won't be here anymore, which developments would you wish to see at CU in the future? Now that's not an easy question. I think I would like, as I said, to be the Department of Gender Studies to be even bigger. And um, more generally, my let's say my overall wish for the CEU would be for it to become more diverse. If you now look at the student body, maybe it is largely diverse with people from uh, all sorts of backgrounds, contexts, identities, parts of the world, so fine. But if you look at the the teaching staff, that's much less the case. And if you look at the, the heads of departments, there are two women this year. So it's really, um, there is a lot of um, work there to be done or change that would be welcome. As much as I have found that most of my male colleagues are in fact really um, good guys, supportive of gender studies, supportive of a lot of the things we stand for. But um, it would be, of course, very good for the university if there were more diversity at all levels. We're getting close to the end here, but um, we were wondering if you have any advice for applicants or incoming students who might listen to this. Well, I think the most important thing probably is not to hesitate to indeed get in touch with either the students who are already there or with the faculty or the staff because it is it is a big step to go to a university. It is a big step to go to a university in another country. So you want to feel, you want to get support and you want to feel connected. And eh, I've been mentioning my earlier experiences. Well, that was a long time ago, and it was only in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, in my own country. So I often think about this: that it must be huge to go to this CEU in this con that country in Europe, than now eh, now eh, um, in Austria. So I would say, do not hesitate at all to write to people and to try to meet immediately with fellow students and and get yeah develop your contacts and friendships and now francisca that we have asked you so many questions this is your chance to ask us something in return or even to add anything that we might have not touched upon i think you have really um, asked me about all the important uh, topics. But maybe I can ask you what for you until now has been the most important in your time at the department. Funnily enough, what came to my mind was the um, 
the city tour the department organized, which I didn't attend, so I cannot really say <laughs> that um, that I enjoyed it because I wasn't there. I'm sure I would have, but I remember being um, yeah drowning in, in coursework at the time. Um, but I think it is great that an expert offers women's city tours of Vienna. And if anyone listening to this is thinking about visiting Vienna in whatever context, I would definitely hope that you will consider that. And I think, um, I mean, the time I've enjoyed the most at the department so far is spring term. <laughs> it's spring term because we have a bit more space to breathe and because we spent the biggest chunk of our time thinking about our thesis, which really is our, is going to be our academic baby. <laughs> and I think what I would add here is the support system that I feel I've been creating ever since I moved here. So I have like all these friends and people that I know are here for me, who can be like older, like such as professors or even staff that, yeah, when I, when I moved here, I thought that maybe I would, I don't know, it's always like a, a bit exigent where we don't know what to expect or what is waiting for us. And I was kind of scared about like having people that I connected with and just having those people that you're like friends just because you see them every day and not because you feel truly connected with them. And that was totally the opposite. I found like so many great friends here and I've been enjoying the city, the department, the whole degree so much more than I was expecting, even though I came with high expectations. So I think that's a really good sign but at the end of the day I just feel like so grateful that not even for a second I felt alone or lonely here I've always had like some friend to reach out to I knew that like something happened to me I could contact the department or like some professor and I wouldn't be like left on my own to take care of anything and I think that really 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 made a difference for me so far. Just thought it was very inspiring to hear that and super important but also maybe formulating what we try to do, which is to put into practice a feminist ethics in the department. And we will say goodbye with how we welcomed you with a bit of Nora Jones. This time, don't know why. Left you by the house of fun I don't know why I didn't come I don't know why I didn't come When I saw the break of day I wish that I could fly Well, our time uh, has come to a close and um, the first episode of Jen's Behind the Scenes is is done. Um, thank you so much, Francisca, for speaking to us. I'm sure every single person who has listened to us has learned at least one new thing about you. We surely have. And, um, and we're really glad that we've had this opportunity to interview you just before you leave and just before you step back from your roles at CU. So thank you, really. 
And of course, we wish you all the best for your next projects and we hope that you'll stay in touch with us in the department, even if we haven't managed to convert you to social media here. <laughs> and thanks also to everyone who listed in and we hope to be back soon with another episode with another faculty member. See you soon. Bye. Bye.